And uh, what a week, huh? What a week. So I don't know what to say about this week. I think one thing I can say is maybe you've noticed that uh, there are a lot of people around you who are very opinionated. Have you noticed that this week? Like there's a lot of people with a lot of like strong opinions, like willing to go out in the street and, and uh, protest about their opinions. So we, we had a chance on Tuesday to express our opinions when it comes to uh, our political choices and, and we exercise that hopefully as individuals. And, and uh, what I discovered is in having conversations with people that a lot of people feel very strongly about things like um, Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, like, like strongly, not like, well, I don't know, like, is it just me or you guys know people who feel strongly, right? And like Republican or Democrat and just like people get really upset and really worked up and a lot of strong opinions. And then there's, then there's other things people have opinions about, like way more important things, way more important than that, like, like Coke or Pepsi, right? Like any Coke people in the crowd? Any, any Pepsi people? All right, here we go. Let's see how this goes. All right, how about Mac or PC? All right, one of the big ones, Mac, Mac, oh, yeah, see, PC, yeah, okay, I think PC's got it there, all right, how about this, how about Ford or Chevy, right, Ford, that's not, my hand is not up, <laughs> Chevy, I don't know what, Dodge, Toyota, all right, all right, there you go, here's a really important one, dogs or cats, right, you ain't dogs? Dogs? Uh, cats? <laughs> Here's an important one in our house, cake or pie, right? Think about it. cake, cake, really, pie? Pie, all right. Now here's one, I have a friend who was telling me this is a really big deal. Like I was like, I didn't know it was a deal at all. He's like, it's a really big deal. Star Wars or Star Trek? Right? Does anyone have an opinion? Star Wars? Opinion. Star Trek. <laughs> Some of you raise your hands twice. Uh, oh, yeah. How about this one? Ducks, beavers, huskies, cougs. All right. How many cougs we got? Let's see. We'll start right there. All right. How about huskies? Huskies? All right. Ducks? <laughs> Beavers? Oh, actually, there you go. All right. Here at Starbucks or Dutch Brothers? All right. Starbucks? Dutch Brothers? All right. Here's the one I face every week on Thursday on my day off. Every week. Home Depot or Lowe's? <laughs> right? Right? Home Depot? Lowe's? Yeah, it kind of depends. And then here's a really big one. All right. For those of you who live in town here, Los Dos or Los Dos Dos, right? <laughs> it's always really the hard one, like, which is it? Oh, here's the ultimate, Washougal or Camus, right? No, we're not even, no, we're not voting on that one. 
But we all have opinions, and we often have very strong opinions, and our, our opinions are, are formulated by a lot of different things that make up our point of view. You know, there's our history, and our experiences, and our desires, and our, our logic, or lack of, and our, our studies, and our education. And, and of course, some opinions that we have are, are about insignificant things, and then some of the opinions we have are... Um, will absolutely determine some of the most important things in our lives. They become very important. So, for instance, you can talk to people, and lots of people have opinions about God. They'll give you an opinion about God. Now, of course, it doesn't change God or anything about God, but people have opinions about him, and it's, it's very important in terms of how it plays out in their life. So, for instance, some people, are, they'll say they're atheists, and they, they believe in the philosophy of materialism, that there is no life after death, that this world, that the material world, um, the atomic world is all that there is, and there, therefore, since there's no life after death and there is no God, there are no moral absolutes, and there are no consequences, really, after this life for the choices that you make. <clears throat> Some people will say they're agnostics, like you just don't, they, they don't know, you can't know, so just, you know, make your best guess and do the best that you can and hopefully it'll all work out for you in the end. Uh, some people are what we might just call theists in general. They believe that there is a creator, but that he uh, is uninvolved in the world, that uh, he doesn't really get involved in the affairs of mankind, that he won't, many will say that ultimately he won't judge anyone, that there's no hell, that there's only heaven. And today we're gonna come to a passage in scripture, so we've been making our way through the Gospel of Luke, and we are now two years in to the Gospel of Luke, and we are down to the Wednesday before the crucifixion, and uh, like I said last week, I think uh, we're two years into it, we've got, we're gonna be done by Easter of next year. We're gonna have this thing all wrapped up. But uh, we're heading into a really interesting portion of scripture. Jesus is gonna tell us a parable today, and in this parable, he wants us to see human history from his point of view, because his point of view is the only view that really counts. And it's gonna take us about three weeks to unwrap this, but we're gonna start this morning, and our passage is in Luke chapter 20, and we're gonna start in verse nine, and I wanna read it for you, but I wanna ask you if you'll stand with me as I read the word of God, and we can just show honor to God's word by standing, and let me read this for you from Luke chapter 20, beginning in verse nine, and you can just listen. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and lent it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. And when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And so he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And so he sent yet a third. And this one they also wounded and they cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of that vineyard, and they killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? Let me pray for us. Father, my prayer for us this morning is that I know we've come in here and we've all got our opinions. But this morning, Father, we need to hear from you. We need to see history from your point of view. We need to see our lives from your point of view. So I pray that your word and your spirit 
will open our hearts and our, our minds this morning. Teach us truth now. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. So Jesus tells us a parable, a parable. A parable is a small story with a big idea. And so we're going to break this down. A lot of times when we go through parables, and we've gone through some parables in Luke, a lot of times we just focus on the big idea. We're, we don't usually do what we're going to do this morning. We're going to break this down because uh, as scholars have noted, this parable is a little bit different than many others because of all the pieces. So we're going to start and just kind of look at the, the parts of the story. It's in your notes. We'll start with the landowner. So we have a landowner. There's a man in the story and he owns a vineyard. He owns a plot of land. Apparently this, this plot of land, he, he designed the vineyard he cultivated the, the vineyard, he, he planted the plants, and, and there was a purpose. The purpose is to produce fruit. That's the goal of a vineyard, to produce some kind of fruit. And then what he did was he rented out the vineyard, the property, to someone else who would be a steward. They would own it, but they would be a steward of it. Now the vineyard owner in this story represents God, represents God the Father. It is God who planned the world, if you will, God who created the world. So we can think of the vineyard as the entire world or even as the universe, if you will. And, and he owns everything. He owns the universe. He owns the earth. He owns a pa the patch of, of earth that you call home. He owns your body. You've been created in the image of God. He owns everything. And all of this is a gift from God. And all of this gift from God, by the way, comes with a purpose. And the purpose is that we would know him, fellowship with him, and bring him glory. And everything that we would do, we would bring glory to God. So there's a landowner, and he represents God the Father in the story. And then there is a vineyard. Now, in one sense, the vineyard is, is all of creation, because all of creation belongs to God. But in this story, in this story, in this parable, it refers to the nation of Israel, now, Israel's national symbol at this time was a vine. In fact, there was a huge vine in, in, in gold that was on the front doors of the temple. Nearly 700 years earlier, Isaiah had said in Isaiah 5 that, that God had identified Israel as his, as his vine. To be connected to God the Father, to the, to the stock, to, to the root, to, to bear fruit, and to bring a fruit that would, that would bring glory to God that would point people to God, that would support and encourage other people spiritually so that all over the world people would see the fruit, the spiritual fruit in the nation and they would be drawn to God the Father. Well, that was the plan and Israel was to be the vineyard. And then there were the tenants. Now the tenants in this story, the renters are the corrupt religious leaders that we have been talking about again and again as we've been going through the Gospel of Luke. Now the tenants rented the land. They don't own the land. They only manage the land. They are stewards of the vineyard. Their job is to make it as fruitful as they can, to make a profit, and then on an annual basis, they would pay the owner an agreed-upon amount, and, and then this is the best part, and then they got to keep the rest for themselves and to use that. But these tenants they have entered into agreement. They've, it's not their property. They've agreed to, uh, with the money that they make to pay a certain amount to the owner, and they decide they don't want to do it. They're not going to do it. They're going to keep all of it for themselves. So they break their promise. These are people who lack integrity. They're ungrateful. They're greedy. They're thieves. And at this point, it might be good for us to stop and just remember that we need to be aware of the attitude in our own lives where we start to think, well, this is my life. <laughs> that this is my body when the Bible says what? That you have been paid for 
with a price that you are not your own, but we say anyways, it's my life, it's my time, these are my relationships, it's my house, it's my money, I'll do what I want to do with it, I don't owe God anything. That's the attitude that these renters have in this story. Now, the, the, the tenants are corrupt religious leaders who, again, we've talked about this, but they, they are resisting Jesus as Lord. They, are, they have rejected Jesus as Lord continually. I mean, despite his teaching, despite his truth, despite the miracles, despite giving sight to the blind, despite raising someone from the dead, they continue to resist. These are not people who are humbly seeking God. They're not. These are not people who are willing to submit to God. These are not people who are teaching truth as they, as they ought to have. They're not leading people to faith. Instead, they are doing what they want. They are ignoring God. They are lying to the people. They're teaching heresy and false doctrine. They're greedy and they're power hungry. These are the tenants. And then there are the servants in the story. And the servants represent the prophets of God that he sent to Israel through the ages. It says, now when the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. So the owner sends a servant to collect the rent. Um, and when he does, and this is very unexpected in the story, the renters beat the servant and they run him off, which is kind of amazing. You'd have to think, well, what could they possibly be thinking at this point? Where do they think that this story is going to go? Like imagine that you own a rental house or piece of property. Imagine it's in another part of the country. And so that you hear the renters are not paying their rent and they're trashing the place. And, and what are you going to do? So you hire someone to go and to check out the situation and to collect the rent that is due to you. And, and instead, they, they beat the person up and they chase them away. What do you do? Well, here's what the, the man does in this story. It says in verse 11. So he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And so he sent yet a third. You start to wonder like, well, how many is this guy going to send? This one also they wounded and cast out. So the owner sends a second servant. And again, they assault him and they throw him out and he, you know, he returns on crutches and like, eh, it didn't go so well. So the owner sends a third. And it, this is the point in the story where you start to say, well, why? Why would he do that? Why would he just keep sending people back? Well, because he represents our heavenly father in the story. Our father who is patient. Our father who has been gracious with us. Certainly gracious with Israel as a nation. Sending prophets again and again. See, again, the earth and everything in it belongs to God. Everything. Our lives, our breath, our food, everything we enjoy, the rain, the occasional sunshine uh, that comes out every now and then, the relationships, the skills that God has given you. And we should use those things to honor God. We should honor God with our lives, with our time, with our wealth and our love and our words. But this is not Israel, what Israel is doing at this point. They are proud. They are selfish. They're ungrateful, but here's the big one. Here's the big one. They are unfruitful, and they, they don't care because it's just all about them at this point in life. And we can get like this sometimes. We can forget sometimes that when we just decide to go against God's will, and I just want to do what I want to do, we forget 
how that impacts not just us, but the whole world around us. Now, we're not producing any spiritual fruit. There's no patience. There's no love in our lives. What's, what does that do to the person we're married to when there's no spiritual fruit in our life? What does that do to our kids? What does that do to our neighbors and the people we work with? But this is what happens. People say, I don't care anymore. It's just all about me. And these are, this, is, this is the leaders of, of Israel at this point. Now, throughout Israel's history, God has sent them, sent them prophets, messengers. A prophet is just someone who would receive a message from God. And, and then they would pass on that message to the people. And oftentimes, to be a prophet was to be a lone voice. It was to be the bearer of bad news. You were someone who would call out sin, who would call people to repent, and would warn them that judgment was coming if, if they didn't. And oftentimes, the people would reject the prophets that God would send them. They would abuse them. They might exile them. They might even kill them. Isaiah, we're, torn, uh, we're, we're told uh, by historians, was eventually sawn in half. Sawn in half because of his, his, his work as a prophet. Elijah was forced to flee for his life. Jeremiah was thrown into a pit and left for dead, eventually stoned to death. Zechariah was murdered. Jonah didn't want the job, right? God's like, hey, Jonah, I got a job. Jonah's like, no, thank you. Oh, I'm going to go work at Lowe's. I don't want to go to Nineveh, right? Jeremiah found it such a difficult job. It was so hard that he wrote a book called Lamentations, which is just really kind of mopey poetry from a depressed guy who wasn't even allowed to get married. And he said things like, cursed be the day I was born. He needed like a vocational counselor at this point because his job is tough. John the Baptist, as we talked about last week, was beheaded. It was a difficult calling. No one invited you to their parties. No one wanted to hear what you had to say. And it could even cost you your life. The prophets, the servants. And then we come to the landowner's son, which you probably figured out by now. That's Jesus. In verse 13, Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. Now he calls him his beloved son because God is trying to, he's trying to help us understand his perspective, his, his point of view, how this is all going down for him. In verse 15 it says this, but when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir, let us kill him so that the inheritance might be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. Now, this is about to happen to Jesus. This is just days away. That he will be betrayed, arrested, tortured, nailed to a cross, and crucified. God's son come down to the earth, and we killed him. The religious leaders will kill the beloved son. Now, if we want to pull back just a little bit, what we can say is this. We are all the wicked tenants. Because it wasn't just the religious leaders that sent Jesus to the cross. It was every one of us. Because our sin is what sent Christ to the cross. All of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's glorious standard. Jesus died for all of us. Let me ask you this. How would you respond if someone was stealing from you, took advantage of you, harassed you, beat your employees, attacked your beloved child, maybe even murdered your child. See, that's human history from God's perspective. He blessed, he loved, 
He blessed. He was patient. We fought him. We fought him. Rejected him. Rejected him. We killed his son. And that brings us to the father's response in this story, which is justice. Now, we'll work through this in the weeks to come. And we're just getting started here. But, you know, sometimes people will say to me, more people than you might imagine, or maybe you hear this too. But sometimes when I get in conversations with people, and this happened actually several times this week, I'd sit down with somebody in a setting, and they'd say, oh, what do you do for a living? And that's when the conversation always gets good. Well, I'm a, I'm a pastor. <laughs> yeah, I believe in Jesus Christ. Let's just get that right out of the way. And not only do I believe in him, but I encourage people to believe in him. And then I hear things like this. I heard this several times this week. Well, I don't know if God exists, they'll tell me, as if you know, that was going to be a big determining factor. I don't know if God exists, but if he does exist, I've heard this, I really feel like He's just, God is just love and, and he doesn't have any right to judge and I don't believe in, there's any hell and uh, even if we reject God, I think we're still all going to heaven because, and a lot of people say this, if there is a God and if God does judge and if God does send people to hell, then I don't want to have anything to do with a God like that. And of course the hard thing is they really, yeah, that they're going to get exactly what they're hoping for. They just don't know what they're saying. I, to which, I had a conversation like this this week with someone who's not a Christian, and I don't know, it went nominally okay, but my response was this, well, see, here's the thing, God is love. God is love. And that's why God must hate sin. Because you, you cannot love, you cannot truly love and not hate sin. Because sin is the opposite of love it's the opposite. So for instance, narcissism. Maybe you've seen that. <laughs> it's around, I hear, you know. Uh, I don't know, no comments, but you know, narcissism, right? Narcissism is not, is not love. It's the opposite of love. Narcissism kills loving relationships. It kills them. It's where someone says, it's, our relationship is not about you. I don't care about you. I don't care about serving you or, or what's important to you. It's just about me. It's about me and I can't tell you as a pastor how many times I've seen that narcissism in a relationship, you cannot have a loving relationship with a narcissist because it's, the, it's sin. It's the opposite of love. Sin is greedy. It is greedy. It's the opposite of love. Love is generous. They're opposites, Right? Sin is impatient, but love is, the, love, is, love is patient. Maybe you've heard that. It's, it hangs in there. Sin is unkind, but love is, the, love is the opposite. Sin tells lies. Love doesn't tell lies. It does not tell lies. It's the opposite of sin. Sin is proud. Jesus is the epitome of love. He was not proud he was humble. It tells us in Philippians, he, he, he came in a body like us. He humbled himself, be, t- taking on the form of a servant. And sin tears down others. Love builds them up. And ultimately, this is it, man. Sin is without faith. Whatever is without faith is sin. What would you have done if you created this world if you blessed your creation, if it kept rejecting you, if you sent messengers and they rejected those messengers, if you were patient, if you kept pursuing, if you sent your beloved son and they murdered him, they murdered your son. 
what would you do? He says, what then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? And then Jesus says this, he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And when the religious leaders heard this, because they're the crowd, they're listening, and their response was surely not. And this is, this is strong. They're like, what? This is the way the story ends? So it says he will destroy the tenants. And this is what will happen to Israel. Israel will face judgment on several different levels. They will, they will face it politically as a nation in about 40-ish years. Uh, the Romans will come in. We'll talk more about this next week. Talked about it last week. And they will level the place. They will level Jerusalem. They will destroy the temple. But there will be spiritual judgment as well. They will lose their spiritual privilege, if you will, their place in this world and how God uses them. He says he will give the vineyard to others. What he says is in this, so if you can imagine the setting, and I don't really know how many people are there, but Jesus is teaching. We know the 12 disciples are there, and we know the religious leaders are there for sure, probably some crowds. And the, Jesus is looking at the religious leaders as he's telling this story, and then he says, and he will give the vineyard to others. And they know exactly what that means. It means God is taking it away from those religious leaders, taking, taking that away from the nation of Israel. God is giving it to us. Uh, now, when he says he's giving it to others, a lot of commentators read this and think, oh, well, he's giving it to Gentiles, and that would have been just abhorrent. That's kind of missing the point. It's a little stronger than that. There were, there were 12 guys, 12 uneducated fishermen, tax collectors sitting there and a crowd of uneducated people around them and Jesus says, I'm giving it to them. Which would have absolutely just been horrifying to the religious leaders to which they say, surely not. This is devastating to lose their privilege to Gentiles, to uneducated, to fishermen and tax collectors. And then Jesus goes on and he says, so here's what you need to do. You need to make sure that you build your life upon him. You build your life upon Jesus Christ. I know we say this all the time, but Jesus is saying it here. He goes on to quote Psalm 118, 22, which was written about a thousand years earlier. Great passage, and in it, it says this. But he looked directly at them and he said, what then is this that is written a thousand years ago the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So now the temple will be destroyed in around 70 AD. And in fact, you can go there today, I'm told, and you can go underground and you can still see the, 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 the temple isn't there anymore, but the foundation stones are still underground and they're huge. They're about the size of, of railroad cars. And the way that they would have built the temple was that the stone itself that was used to build uh, the temple and the, the compound would have been quarried a little ways away. And so the, an architect would say, we need this many stones and they need to be cut to this size. And they'd go to the quarry and then the masons would cut out the rock and into the shapes and then and they would send it to the site where it was going to be built. Now, sometimes they would, they would carve out a rock and there'd be something wrong with it. It would be irregular, not quite square, whatever, and they would just cast it aside. And sometimes they would just cr crush it up eventually and use it for gravel, but it was, it was cast aside. It wasn't going to be used. 
Jesus is saying this. He says it's kind of like a stonemason who's going to build a big, beautiful building and, and uh, the stonemasons cut up all the stone and they take one stone and they say, we're not going to use that. We're, they reject it and they go and they move all the other block to where they're going to build this building and then the architect comes along and he sees the rejected stone and he says, actually, not only do I want to use it, but it's going to be the first stone. It's going to be the very first stone that we lay in the important corner of the building and the entire building will extend out from that one cornerstone. That way, that way, up in every direction. It becomes the stone, if you will, on which the entire building is built. And that's Jesus. Because Jesus has been rejected by the religious leaders. They have cast him aside. He didn't fit their expectations as Messiah. He, he was poor, he was single, he didn't go to their universities, they hadn't approved of him, he kept challenging them, he kept telling them to repent, teaching that he was the way and the truth and the life and that no one comes to the Father but through him. And so the religious leaders cast him aside. They said, we don't want you, we don't want you to be part of what it is that we're building. And of course, people still cast Jesus aside to this day. They don't want to build their life around him. And Jesus is basically saying this, if I'm not your cornerstone, then I will be a different kind of stone. This is a hard teaching. We don't really want to hear this today. You could think of it this way. You could say, I could either be the rock of your salvation in a difficult world. If I'm not the one that you hold on to, if I'm not your anchor in life, then I will be like the stone that falls upon you and judges you and crushes you. Again, everyone likes the rock of salvation idea. We don't really like the idea of Jesus being judge. But if you reject Christ as the cornerstone, he says he will be your judge. In fact, a little while later in Acts chapter 4, after the, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension, Peter is preaching apparently to some of these same religious leaders. And he says this, he's, he says, this Jesus is the stone that was reject, rejected, so now he gets really personal by you. So he's not like, let's just talk about what you did now. Right, you rejected him. How did you reject him? Well, you crucified him. You murdered him. He was innocent and you killed him. So just, you know, so we get that straight. Uh, he was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And then he says it, and there's salvation in no one else. For there's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And so in the middle of this bad news, though, Peter also says, but there's good news. And the good news is this, that we rejected God's son, that it was all of our sin that nailed him to that cross. But here's the thing you have to understand. The cross was not plan B. It was not like God was up in heaven and he sent down his son and he was hoping we'd, you know, accept him and embrace him and love him. God knew what we would do. He knew that. It was always the plan that Jesus would go to the cross and on that cross he would, he, would bear, he would bear your sin and bear my sin. He would pay the price for that sin and then he would offer to us what, what Luther called the great exchange. That is, he would be willing to take your sin, all of your sin, every sin you've ever committed, ever will commit, he takes all of that sin, he bore that sin, he died for that sin, and he offers to you something else in exchange. So he takes away all your sin and he offers you his righteousness, his right standing before God. And this was always God's plan. 
the cornerstone, the free gift of God, the forgiveness of your sin, an invitation to become a child of God, to be given the gift of the Holy Spirit. But if you reject him, then he will be something else. He will be your judge. So build your life on Jesus. Build it on Jesus. Build your faith on Jesus. All of your faith, all of your doctrine, all of your theology, what you believe, you build it on Jesus. You go to him first. You start with Christ. You build your daily to-do list on Jesus. You build your education. You build your marriage. You build your job, your money, your decisions on Jesus. Now here's what I don't mean. And a lot of times when we hear this, this is what we think. Oh, so I take, I take my marriage and I add Jesus and then he'll bless me, right? We, and this is something people like to do. This is not, that's not building your life on Jesus. Building your life on Jesus isn't where you say, well, you know, here are my goals and here are my aspirations and if your heart can, I don't know, if your mind can conceive and your heart can believe, right? That whole kind of thing. Like, and, and then I'll just add Jesus. That's not building your life on Jesus. Building your life on Jesus is not where you start with something and then you say, I'm gonna add a little Jesus and he's gonna bless it and it's all gonna be really great. That's not building your life on Jesus. Building your life on Jesus is where you start with Jesus, right? We say, what does he say about life? And then I'm gonna build on that. What does he say about money? And then I'm gonna build on that. That's different than saying, this is my money <laughs> and I'll go read a little Jesus and add a little Jesus to it. No, we start with Jesus. What does Jesus say about priorities? And then build priorities. What does Jesus say about time? And then schedule a time. What does Jesus say about marriage? What does Jesus say about raising kids? What does Jesus say about relationships? And then building on that, building your schedule, your education upon Jesus, your weekend, your retirement. You start with Jesus, you seek him, and you build your life around that. You start with Jesus, you start with him. Let me ask you this, where do you need to do that today? Where do you need to start with Jesus in Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Some good words. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Trust in God with all of your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. Right? See, because those are two different things. Don't start with your own understanding and add Jesus. Start with Jesus. In all your ways, acknowledge him. To acknowledge him in this sense means to, to both recognize what he says and to acknowledge him isn't just to be like... Hey, Jesus, I acknowledge you up there. It's, like, it's to do what he says. And he will make straight your paths. But this is, this is tough for us sometimes to, to think about how this works because our tendency is, I want to start with what I want and I want to just, you know, ask Jesus to come in and, and, and bless it. I'm going to take this job, Jesus, and now once I take this job, I want you to bless it or this relationship or whatever. So I'll give you this as a, as, as a closing illustration. So when I was in college... Mm, um, many, many, many years ago, uh, when I was a freshman and a sophomore and a junior, I did what a lot of my friends did and, and maybe what some of you did, but, you know, I moved away. I was in college, uh, started dating. And so, you know, like I'd get, I'd basically looking back, it went like this. I'd see somebody and think, oh, I'd, you know, like to go out on a date with her. And so I'd ask her out on a date and then I'd ask Jesus to bless it, Right. See, so, ooh, I'd like to, oh, yeah, Jesus, oh, here's what we do. Well, I'm going to ask her out. Oh, Jesus, please, I, you know, let her say yes, right? That's starting with me and then going to Jesus, but that was my dating life. And then going out a date and praying, oh, God, you know, bless, oh, I, I'm taking her out. 
Hope you bless it. And so this went on, and it to um, not didn't really produce great results. Uh, freshman, sophomore, junior year. Got to the near the end of my junior year, and I'm just kind of on this cycle where basically I decide what I want to do, and I'll go out with her, and then I'll ask Jesus to bless it. And he's not. He's not. It's just really not blessing it. I can't figure it out. So I finally sit down with my Greek professor one afternoon, a uh, complete nerd. Um, I don't know why I went to him for dating advice, but uh, I did. And so we sat down and we're talking about it. And basically what he said was, he always called me Barnes. He said, listen, Barnes, uh, here's the problem. He said, basically, this is what you're doing. You're deciding what you want to do, and then you're asking Jesus to bless it, and it doesn't work that way. It's not how it works. Here's what you need to do. First, you need to stop what you're doing. You need to stop. Stop asking girls out and just take some time and say, I'm not going to do that for a period of time and during that time, I'm going to seek Jesus Christ first. I'm going to read his word. I'm going to talk to wise people. I'm going to spend time in prayer and time in fasting because this is an important thing. Seek him first. Don't make a move and then say, I'm not making a move. I'm not asking anyone out, Jesus, until I've started with you and then I will build on top of that and you'll have to let me know when it's time to move. Start with Jesus. Start with him. Does that make sense? So don't just add him. Start with him, which is what I did. The very next person that I dated was Christy and we've been married for 29 years. Now I'm not saying it's always gonna work out that way, but it might, so um, if that's important to you. But you start with Jesus. You start with him, you seek him, you get into his word and you get to know him. And then you build upon that. Jesus is the cornerstone. Let me ask you this question as we close. Where do you need to do that today? Is there some area in your life that you are not building upon Christ, upon his word, upon obedience. You're just doing what you want and hoping he'll bless you. And it's not working out. Where do you need to put him first today? Let me pray for us.